Amen. Would you stay standing and grab your Bibles and let's just um, look at the first section here that we're going to be looking at. John chapter 9, verse 1 says, Now, as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. As long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. So, Lord, we pray that here today... Your work would be done and revealed in us, Lord. We thank you that you've come to be the light of the world, that you shine in the darkness, and I pray that you would shine today here in our midst, in our service, and into our very hearts, illuminating your truth, but also revealing areas maybe that we need to get right with you. And would you come and do your work here today through your word? We ask, we invite you here today in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. So in John chapter 9 here, we're looking at a, a, a great chapter. Now what we're seeing here in the book of John, of course, is that the author, John the Apostle, is, is writing again to reveal seven I am statements of Jesus. We saw one of them last week in chapter 8. It's repeated here in chapter 9. I'm the light of the world. But also John is writing not only to reveal seven of these I am statements revealing who Jesus is, but to reveal these seven works or miracles of Jesus that are also revealing his deity, revealing who he is. Now, it's interesting because those first three signs that we saw in the Gospel of John kind of reveal, they illuminate in a sense, how a person is saved. Because we saw, first of all, the turning of water to wine. We saw the, the healing of the nobleman's son. And then we saw the healing of the impotent man by the pools of Bethesda. So we see in those three works here that, that salvation comes through the word, the, the water being turned to wine. It comes through faith. The healing of the nobleman's son, it comes by grace, which was the man at the pools of Bethesda. Jesus comes and he selects him and chooses to heal him. But now these last four signs of the work of Jesus really reveal again now the results of salvation. Because remember what the next sign was, was in John chapter 5, the feeding of the 5,000. It reveals the satisfaction now that we have through life in Jesus. And then we saw the stilling of the storm, the peace that God brings into our lives. Here today, we're going to see this healing of the blind man. And so, again, the result of salvation is that light comes in. It begins to illuminate our way. We begin to see the truth. And then we'll be seeing uh, also coming up the, the raising of Lazarus from the dead. So, again, the result of salvation, no doubt, is the life that Jesus brings. The, the abundant life today and eternal life forever. What a blessing we have in Jesus. So we're focusing on the healing of the blind man. This um, sixth of the seven works, miracles of Jesus that John is looking to highlight to the gospel of John. Now here's what we're going to be looking at as we go through chapter 9. And, and Lord willing, getting through all of it here today. Some of you are saying that will be the seventh miracle we'll be looking at here today. But we'll see if that works or not. But here's what we're going to be looking at. The cure of this blind man. We're going to see the controversy that came about because of it. And you might think, how could there ever be controversy from a man being given his sight miraculously? Well, we'll see what happened here. And then we'll see the confession of this blind man. And it's so good to see just the growth of this man. So notice there in verse one, again, 
just to give you a bit of the, the, the context here, this is all taking place now just after the Feast of Tabernacles. It's in the fall that people have been gathering around Jerusalem as people sojourning, journeying in as pilgrims to this great feast that lasted for eight days. So this is now at the end of the feast. There's still people around. Remember, at the end of chapter 8, as Jesus is preaching and teaching that the Jews at the end of chapter 1 to kill him. But it says, notice this, it says at the end of, verse, of chapter 8, at the end of verse 9, let, let me just, sorry, chapter 8, verse 59. Let me just read that verse. Then they took up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them, and so passed by. But now in chapter 9, verse 1, now as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth. Isn't that great? Because here's Jesus now is he's passing by the crowds. God, again, is having that supernatural kind of protection over Jesus. As much as people want to take him out, take him down, nothing would happen apart from the Lord's timing of that happening. So Jesus passed by, he escaped through. But as he's passing by, looking to protect his life, he is not passing by the needs of people. Because as he's passing by in protection and away from the Jews looking to kill him, he passes by a man who's in need. Blind from birth. I'm so grateful for the heart and the compassion of Jesus that, that here he's not out just to kind of escape and, and free himself and protect himself, but even in the midst of his greatest need, he's looking at the needs of others and he's not passing by. Just as Jesus desires not to pass by you in your time of need. Some of us might think sometimes that, oh, Jesus is too busy. He's got too much going on. There's, there's so much happening in the world. Why would Jesus be concerned about me? But here's Jesus looking to escape the hands of murderers trying to stone him. And as he's passing by from the midst of them, he passes by a man in need. And he comes alongside him. Not saying, hey, come and meet me over here because there's people after me. He comes by. And he meets that need right now. And he ministers to this man. I'm so grateful for the heart and the compassion of Jesus. Never think that Jesus is too busy for you or he's got too much going on. Because as you express your need to Jesus, he desires to come alongside. And not pass you by, but come alongside you in your need. And minister to you with that heart of love and compassion. So glad for that. So here's the disciples now, and they see this man, and it's identified that he's a man born blind. And so the disciples ask him an important question. Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now that was an interesting question to ask here, because the disciples saw really basically all kind of suffering or need like this as a result of some kind of sin or problem. In other words, they were saying, well, suffering must be because of this. And it's a question that gets asked a lot of times today. Why is there suffering in the world? In fact, people will ask, you know, if there's really a God, then why is there suffering in the world? And a lot of people equate suffering to, again, some kind of sin. In fact, you'll hear people, you'll hear some church circles, you know, teaching and, and, and kind of promoting this idea that your sickness or whatever you're going through, it's really a result of either your sin or a lack of faith. You need to get right. I've had people when I was, when I was away on, in, in Rhode Island at Bible College, man, we had some people that were kind of along those lines, you know, sort of that word faith movement and, and you know, being sick, they're like, well, you must have some sin that you haven't confessed yet. And I was like, I wanted to kind of 
get busy sending up and down that guy and just start, you know, putting him straight. But I didn't. Um, and, and it's just such a wrong teaching, you see. Now, here's the disciples, and they're, they're asking this question here now. Why is this happening to this man? What's the result? What's the, the reason for it? Did this man sin or his parents? Now, you might be asking, well, how could this be attributed to this man's sin if he was born blind, right? If he's born that way, how can that be? Well, there's a couple thoughts that were at work here in this day. First of all, there was the belief in prenatal sin. And they kind of got that from Genesis chapter 25 with Jacob and Esau. Remember, Jacob came out and he's clutching Esau's heel as they were coming out of the womb. So right there, they kind of think, oh, there's, there's this sort of action and this trait of sin going on even within the womb. So they had this idea that even in the womb, a person could begin to sin, you know, kicking and stuff like that. Some of you moms, expectant moms have thought this child is full of sin because he is making my life so uncomfortable. You thought that, haven't you? Well, that's the view there in that day. And then also they, they believed that there was that preexistence of the soul. And so these souls were either good or evil. So if a bad soul came and entered that, that embryo or fetus in the womb well they would be full of sin and that would be the result here and so sometimes whatever kind of you know defect or deficiency perhaps it was a result of a precondition in a sense so that's the view that they had now you're also wondering well how could this man's blindness be attributed to his parents sin well they also had some scriptures that kind of revolved around that exodus chapter 34 verse 7 which says keeping mercy for thousands forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin by no man by no means clearing the guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and children's children to the third and the fourth generation so some people looked at that as though the lord was going to keep visiting the children and the next generations because of the sin of their forefathers but that's not what that verse is speaking of this is not by any means giving any kind of, uh, of uh, credibility to generational curses as some teach. I don't believe that. But rather what the Lord is doing is that he's coming and visiting the next generations to reveal this salvation and forgiveness of sin that they have. That he's not going to dismiss them because of the sin of the father. So, so here's the deal. They're wondering what's the result here? What's going on? Now understand and this is important. God isn't looking to punish people because of every slip up or, or sin that's committed. And that's what a lot of people think sometimes. Yes, there's times where there's a corrective measure where God allows you to feel kind of the fire getting turned up to get you back on track and maybe to get you back on the, the right way. But God's not looking to punish you. That's more the, the loving chastening of the father as Hebrews teaches us. So God's not looking to punish you and just kind of, you know, make life miserable because of some slip up or, or, or sin that's gone on. But again, that question needs to be asked. Why does suffering occur in the world? Because I'm sure you've had to deal with that from people asking you, people wondering, if there's really God, why is there suffering in the world? Well, first of all, I think a lot of it is simply because of general, the general effect of sin in the world. Genesis chapter 3 teaches that Adam and Eve sinned and rebelled against God and there was a curse. And so now because of that, yeah, we have difficulty. There are, are hardships in life. There was a, a curse that's been brought in the world that we are all product of in a sense and, and, and feel the effects of because of sin that's come into the world, because of, of rebellion against God. We feel the effects of it. 
But secondly, suffering is allowed in the world so that God might make himself known in it and through it all the more. That's what we see as we move on here. Look at verse 3. This is so important. Jesus answered his disciples and said this, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. Now that's important. See, God knew exactly that this man would be born blind. He knew this man before he even was passing by and saw him. He knew everything about this person. But God also had an intended good outcome through it all. God was going to work in it and through this man to reveal God's greatness and glory. God had a purpose for all of this. And here's a very important truth that we need to remember and that we need to remind ourselves daily of. And it's this, that God doesn't exist for us, but we exist for God. Our lives exist for the glory of God. That should be the very heart that you have every day when you wake up to say, God, I want my life to count for you today. I want my life to bring glory to you today because that's ultimately why I'm here, why you've given me life, why you created me and you brought me into fellowship with you through your son, Jesus Christ, is so that I might bring glory to God. And here's the great thing, is that when we are bringing glory to God, that's when we're going to find ourselves living in the greatest joy and satisfaction and peace because we're accomplishing that which God has created us for. And so, even in the midst when we might be going through adversity or difficulty or even suffering, if we can say, God, what is your purpose in this for me? God, can you bring glory through this? Then Lord, let me trust you and and be at rest in that. Even in the midst of suffering then, we can say there's a higher purpose in this that can ultimately bring me joy because I'm fulfilling what I've been created for and that is to bring glory to God. Not all healing, nor not all sickness is going to be healed. We see that with with Paul's life. And look at what Paul would even say in 2 Corinthians 12 verse 9. That he said to me, Paul's referring to what Jesus spoke to him. He says, my grace is sufficient for you. For my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. So Paul could realize, though this thorn in the flesh wasn't going to be taken from him, that he was going to have to go through this period of uncomfortableness, which we oftentimes don't like, he says, Jesus reminded him that his grace was sufficient because it's in our weakness that Christ's strength is made even more evident. Paul says, oh, that the Lord's power might just rest in me, might be seen in me, that his glory might be evident in and through my life, even in the midst of this difficulty. I think Paul was able to live with great joy because he was living for the purpose of seeing God glorified in his life. You know, sometimes there's things that are going on even that we don't fully see. Take take the life of Job, for instance. Job is the, he's kind of the poster boy of suffering, isn't he, in the Bible? He's the guy that we look to when we go, oh man, we're going through suffering. Let's read a bit of Job here to kind of help me out through this, right? But remember in the story of Job, It all centered around a conversation that Satan had with God there in the heavenlies. And God basically said, Satan, have you considered my servant Job? 
who's an upright man. And Satan says, oh, he's only living for you because he's blessed. But if you start stripping those things away, he's going to curse you. God says, have at it, Job. Or Satan, have at him. See what he does. And Job suffered greatly. Read to the story of Job. Just even, you just have to go through the first couple of chapters and you get a picture of what he had to deal with. And it starts to, I think, help us. You are suffering to go, oh man, I'm so thankful. I don't have to go through what Job went through. But here's the thing. That was all taking place because of a cosmic scene, a, 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 a backdrop that, here's the thing, Job never knew. Job never was told. God never came alongside Job and said, Job, by the way, I allowed all this because I wanted to prove something to Satan. And all through the book of Job, Job and his friends are asking these questions. Why, why? But Job never had the questions answered. He had to realize he just needed to trust God. That God was doing something in a greater way than Job would ever see just kind of at face value. So there's a lot going on that we don't oftentimes see or know. But we can trust God and say, God, I'm going to believe that you're going to reveal your glory through my suffering and difficulty. I'm going to, I'm going to allow my life to be used for you, God, and for your honor, for your glory, because that's why I exist. And so if it can be done in the midst of suffering or difficulty, then so be it, Lord, have at it, because that's really all that I'm here for is to bring glory to you. So whatever way that might be accomplished, great. Now, there are times where he will heal a person. Sometimes it's, it's to allow a person to go through that time in an ongoing way. Think of Joni, um, Joni Tata Erickson, am I getting the name right? Who became a, a, a quadriplegic through a diving accident. And in that time, she became closer to the Lord. And she realized that the Lord was going to use her in a greater way through this tragedy and accident to where her life is bringing great glory to God. In, in, and she feels in a way greater and more so than would have happened if she didn't allow this to happen. So there's times where God doesn't heal. But then there are times where, as I oftentimes pray, Lord, let me be the one that you reveal your glory through the healing. Because that's what he does with this man. He reveals his glory through the healing. Now, let's read what Warren Wearsby says. Jesus never saw the sin of this man or his parents as the cause for this man's sins, nor did he suggest that God deliberately made the, bl- the man blind so that years later, Jesus could perform a miracle. Since there's no punctuation in the original manuscripts, we are free to read John 9, verse 3 to 4 this way. Neither this man nor his parents sinned, period. But that the works of God should be revealed in him, I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. So that's what Jesus says here. I'm here to accomplish the work of God here while I'm able because Jesus knew that in just a little while he'd be going to the cross. That's what he's speaking about here. Now's the time where he's able to minister and reveal this light because there's a time where the crowds are going to extinguish the light when Jesus goes to the cross. Now it's time for him to work and get busy in, in revealing himself and his glory. And how true that is for us to realize that that time is short. Time is short. Jesus is coming soon. How we need to get busy, yet how we love to procrastinate. I, 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 am, I love to procrastinate. In fact, 10 years ago, I joined a, a procrastination support group. Uh, we haven't met yet, but I'm hoping that one day it's going to really 
take effect. But we all can be that way, can't we? Where we really love just to kind of put things off. Oh, you know what? I'll get to that tomorrow. Oh, I'll talk to that person another day. And here's the thing is that we're just living on borrowed time. Jesus is coming soon. And we don't know when that's going to happen. And how we need to have that kind of mentality like Jesus says, while it is day, while we have this side of eternity, because this is the only time that we have this side of eternity to be fruitful and, and, and again, just kind of do that work that's going to pay eternal rewards. We need to get busy in, in sharing the gospel, telling people about Jesus. Let's not put it off any longer. I love what, what C.T. Studd says, that only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. See, what we're doing with an eternal value is going to pay those eternal rewards and dividends for, for all of eternity. And that is done now. While we're living this life, this side of eternity, let us get busy. Jesus says in verse 5, as long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. Again, just what he said in John 8 verse 12. This whole chapter really now becomes that illustration, doesn't it? That he's the light of the world as he gives sight to this blind man. As he begins to reveal all that Jesus has for this person. So, he says in verse 6 now. When he said these things, Jesus spat on the ground and made clay with the saliva. And he anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay. And he said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. This is great. Now, you might also read that and go, what a, why did Jesus heal this way? What's going on? That's kind of gross. In our day, we'd be like, oh, Jesus, don't, no, don't do that. Not that we'd see what he's doing. He's, we're blind, of course, but we'd be kind of wondering, like, why are you doing that? And, and here's the interesting thing is that Jesus never always just duplicated the same method. Jesus didn't have a system of healing. Like, come to my school and learn how to heal. It was always, like, very different. Sometimes he spat directly on the eye. Sometimes he just spoke the word and people were healed. But here... He spits on the ground. And we'll see the significance of that coming up. But I think it's a great picture too. Because here he spits on the ground. He makes this mud. And he puts it on this man's eyes. And what does that do? Well, that becomes a bit of an irritant, right? Becomes a bit of an irritant on that. Have you ever had mud in your eyes, right? In fact, the the first time that I met my wife, we were um, counselors at a camp, Timberline Ranch. And the first day us counselors were doing a mud run at Timberline. Anybody ever been to Timberline Ranch camp before? You do the mud run when you're there? Yeah, okay, all right, lots of fun. But uh, it's not the way that you want to really meet your, your, your soon-to-be spouse. You know, you're all dirty, you're muddy. It wasn't really, you know, conducive to attraction. But um, and more so, you know, on my part, with, with she wasn't into me at all. And so I'm just trying to um, get a little bit of, Sympathy from all of you. It took me a while to break her down. <clears throat> so, um, but mud, man, it gets in there. It gets everywhere and, and it gets to be an irritant. You need a you know, wash. And so Jesus says, go to the pool of Siloam. And, and John translates that for us because it really means in the Hebrew, scent. Because the story goes how, how King David wanted to bring the waters. They had no water source within the city walls of Jerusalem. So they, they dug tunnels. It's an amazing thing. Hez, King Hezekiah actually dug the tunnels 
from the Gihon Springs and brought into Jerusalem. So the waters were sent into the city. And, and it's a fitting picture as Jesus was sent to the world to illustrate this truth, to bring the good news to us. And how when we receive that, we receive the, the water of his word. It begins to wash us clean. It begins to remove the irritant of sin in our lives. Here's this man in, in his condition. It's an irritant. It's uncomfortable. He needs, he needs help. He needs to be washed clean, which only the water of the word can do. And this man goes and he has to follow in obedience. So some people say Jesus did these things to kind of incite that sort of, it was kind of a trigger point of faith. It, it sort of made this man walk in obedience to the instructions of Jesus here. But we'll see again, there was another work that Jesus was doing in that. So nevertheless, this man goes, he washed himself just as Jesus has said, and suddenly he's able to see. Think about what a day that'd be. This man has never seen the creation of God. He's never seen colors. He's never seen what nature looks like, the trees and the flowers. Suddenly he's seen that for the first time. And we don't know how old this man is, but he's able to see what a thing that would be here. Now notice as we read on here, verse eight, therefore the neighbors and those who previously had seen that he was blind said, is not this he who sat and begged? Some said, this is he. Others said, it, he is like him. But he said, I am he. They start wondering. They're like, no, this can't be. This can't be the same guy because he's blind. How can anybody be given his sight? And understand something that this had never been done up until this point. We don't read of any Old Testament miracle of a person being given their sight. But yet, this is something that was spoken of that would be a messianic work. So this man has been given to say, this is something that's so odd and peculiar and strange that, that people are, are almost dismissing it, thinking, this can't be, we've never seen anything like this. No, it's just somebody that's like him. It can't be the same guy, yet this man says, no, it's me, I'm the guy. He starts to share. And they answer, or he answered and said in verse, no, sorry, let's go to verse 10. Therefore they said to him, how were your eyes open?" He answered and said, a man called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to the pool of Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and I received sight. Then they said to him, where is he? He said, I do not know. So this man just says, and he doesn't have, listen, he doesn't have the whole story down as far as who Jesus is. We're going to see is a wonderful thing develop as we go through this chapter is that this man's faith in Jesus and understanding of Jesus begins to grow. That's an important thing because that's what Jesus desires for all of us, that we be those that are continuing to progress in our walk with the Lord, where our understanding of who Jesus is continues to mature and grow. And that's what Jesus is going to do this man. Up until now, he just says, some man named Jesus, he told me to do this. I thought it was weird. He spit on the ground, made some mud. Yeah, it was kind of gross, but man, I had to go wash now after that. I had to do what he said. And I was able to see. And they're astonished. So here we see the cure, verses 1 and 12. But now, in verse 13, we begin to see the controversy begin to heat up. And again, you might be wondering, how could there ever be controversy over a blind man being given his sight and being given his sight in a very miraculous way? Well, let's see what goes on here. Look at verse 13. They brought him who formerly was blind to the Pharisees. Oh boy, mistake right there. The Pharisees 
are these religious leaders. They're the ones that feel like they're appointed to uphold God's law, to make sure that nobody goes against God's word. They were the spiritual elite. They were the ones that were trying to make themselves kind of like up here over everybody else. The spiritual elitism. They want to demonstrate how wonderful, how holy, how spiritual they were for the fanfare and public praise of other people. They were full, full of pride and hypocrisy. But here's this religious crowd, these religious leaders that everybody was looking to. So they bring this man to him. Now notice in verse 14. Here's where the controversy begins to be seen. Now it was a Sabbath when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. Then the Pharisees also asked him again how he'd received his sight. And he said to them, he put clay on my eyes and I washed and I see. Therefore, some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. Others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. Very interesting. So here again is what's going on because it's all centering around the Sabbath. And it, I, I just think it's so cool because Jesus, I think, very, very, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Very purposefully goes and he does this stuff on a day when everybody was upholding this fourth command of God. Thou shalt, you know, observe the Sabbath and keep it holy. But now what the Pharisees and the religious leaders began to do is like, okay, what does that mean now to keep it holy? And it says, thou shalt do no work on it. Well, what does that mean? What, what constitutes work? So what the Pharisees began to do is they began to break down all these different rules. They began to interpret what work was. And in so doing, they began to add all these extra laws to just the very simple law of God. So they began to make up rules, how you observe the Sabbath and what constitutes work. They said, listen, you can go ahead and spit. You can spit on a rock. But when you spit down on the dirt and that spittle begins to kind of make a little bit of a roll and ball out of the dirt. Well, now it's making mud and that's constituting work. All right. You're kind of like doing a work on the ground there. You're making mud. So that is breaking the Sabbath. So how does Jesus heal this man? He spits on the dirt and he makes some mud. Now, Jesus knew, obviously, what these people were thinking and how they were interpreting the Sabbath law. So Jesus goes and he does this to, again, kind of push them, cause them to kind of really evaluate what they're observing, how they're living. Are you living religiously here? Or are you seeking to follow simply the word of God? So, this controversy begins to ensue. Look at verse 17. They said to the blind man again, what do you say about him? Because he opened your eyes? He said, he's a prophet. Oh, remember what he said there in, in verse 11? Oh, some man named Jesus. But now he's beginning to realize, no, hold on a second. How can anybody do this work if he's not sent of God? Well, he must be a prophet then. He's beginning to grow in his understanding of Jesus. It's beginning to expand. The Lord is doing this, this work in him and beginning to expand his understanding of who Jesus is. He must be a prophet. But the Jews in verse 18 did not believe concerning him that he had been blind and received his sight until they called the parents of him who had received his sight. And they asked them saying, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? And his parents answered them and said, well, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind, 
But by what means he now sees, we do not know, or what, or who opened his eyes, we do not know. He is of age. Ask him. He will speak for himself. And his parents said these things because they feared the Jews. And whenever we're hearing that term, the Jews in John, it's speaking of the religious leaders. This establishment made up of the, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, all, all the like here. But here the context is with these Pharisees, these religious leaders. And so they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already uh, agreed already that if anyone confessed that he was the Christ, that he'd be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. So here we see this interrogation process going on. And again, what a sad, a sad scene that's going on as this man is able to see for the first time his whole life. He's never seen anything. I mean, I would just want to get out and start running around and looking at everything that I had formerly just kind of touched and envisioned what this might look like. Now you're able to see it for real. And yet, what is he doing? He's having to be brought into the Pharisees with probably a frown, a scowl on their faces as he's getting interrogated, as his parents are getting interrogated. What a sad thing. This is exactly what religion does. Religion just begins to sap away any kind of life or vibrancy of life or joy that a person might have when the Lord wants to free you from all that. The Lord wants to set you free as we saw in, in John 8 that, that you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Well, this man has just been brought into the, the truth and the light of Jesus and he's been set free and yet these religious leaders are just continuing to bring him trying to zap away this kind of life and vibrancy and joy that he's able to experience now having his sight and yet all he's seen is a bunch of scouring upset angry people you see anytime that you're living a life where you're trying to find through legalism or religion and, and find that this is how I'm going to really live my life for God. It's going to just bring about a burden in your life. It's going gonna, it's gonna to remove any kind of joy and life and freedom that Jesus wants to bring you. Don't think that it's through following religion or rules. Or living a, a legalistic life. In, in other words, that word legalism simply means that you're trying to bring yourself just under the duty of the law. Well, you can't do that. You can't do this. Now, sure, there's things that the Lord says, hey, you know what? Refrain from this because it's going to be health to you. But we so often make rules like these men are doing out of just, um, out of tradition, out of our own interpretation of the law and anything that's outside of God's word. Now we're just bringing ourselves back under law and duty and, and, and burden. That's not what Jesus has for us. Man, this man should be getting out there and seeing the sights and living the life. But what a sad scene that we see before us. And now his parents are brought in and they just say, listen, and, and, and they do what I think any of us would want to do in this situation is kind of, Pass the buck. I don't want to deal with that. Ask him. He's of age. He'll tell you. We can let you know. Yeah, he's our son and he was born blind. We'll answer two of your three questions. But the third one, how this happened, ask him. And perhaps they, they literally don't know. But they're also being driven by this fear of the Jews. Because 
they had already agreed now, the Jews, the religious leaders, that anybody that confessed that Jesus was the Christ, they'd be put out of the synagogue, which means that they'd be excommunicated. And that was a big deal in this day. And let me just, let me just paint the picture here for you. It was a big deal because that, that life, you know, revolving around Judaism, uh, going to the synagogue, that was your very livelihood. To be excommunicated from the, the, the synagogue would remove you from outside of the structure of just your whole social activity, your livelihood, your, your very being. You were just now an outcast. That was a serious thing. But here's the thing that we have to remember is that we don't need to have a fear of people and what they might do. We need to fear the Lord. We need to fear God and say, He's the one that I need to obey above everything else. Sometimes we compromise because we want to stay comfortable in our setting or in our situation or circumstances. And we can easily compromise and say, well, I, I don't want to. Or, or maybe it's, it's, in, it's in communicating the truth with other people and say, I don't want them to, to kind of now not want to be friends with me. So I'm not going to maybe share that truth with them. But we need to say, I want above all, honor the Lord. I want to serve the Lord. I don't want to have a fear of man. I want to have a fear of God in a proper sense that, that I revere him above everything else, that he's the one that I want to serve and live for above all. So these parents are struggling in that. But let's see here as we move on what goes on here. So in verse 24, they again called the man who was blind and said to him, Give God the glory. We know that this man is a sinner. And he answered and said, Whether he's a sinner or not, I do not know. But one thing I know, that though I was blind, now I see. Oh, that's, that's gold right there. They say, give God the glory. And that might be a way of saying, we want you to take a vow to tell us the truth. Give God the glory. Or it could mean that they're saying, we want you to give God the credit for this miracle and not this man, Jesus. Don't attribute this to Jesus. Give God the glory for it. But here's what the man says, and I love this. And it's what all of us can say here in our own testimony. We don't know exactly how this all happened, but we know Jesus did it. Here's the reality. I was blind, but now I see. That was the condition that we were all in, just like that man. We were blind. We were being led along by the enemy of this world the, the, and, and following the course of this world as Ephesians 2 says we were in blindness but God who is rich in mercy made us alive he's given sight to us he's allowed us to begin to see the truth to be brought into the light every single one of us has a testimony when we put our trust in Jesus to say I was blind but now I see I was dead but now I've been given life in and through Jesus. And here's the great thing. Nobody can argue your testimony. This man didn't have his theology all down right. He goes, man, I can't answer a lot of this stuff for you. Whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know those things. But here's what I do know. This man wasn't concerned about, do I have all my theology right? Can I, can I tell these guys about, you know, eschatology or soteriology? Can I argue these things? Do I know all my scripture? Don't know. He didn't know, he didn't need to know all that. He said, here's what I do know. And sometimes we really wrestle in witnessing because we think, do I know all my facts? Do I have all the scriptures down? You don't need to know those things. It's good if you do. 
Oh, for sure, get the word of God in your heart, memorize scripture. But here's the thing. Nobody can argue your testimony. A changed life leaves the critics speechless. Just let people know what Jesus has done for you. Let people know that, man, I was once here, but now Jesus has changed my life. We just need to let people know what Jesus has done for us because a man with an experience is never at the mercy of a man with only an argument. Kent Hughes said this, you may not be an authority on theology, but you are the world's greatest authority on what has happened to you. So just give that out. Share that with people. You, you may not be able to answer all the questions and you don't need to. You just say, I don't know that, but here's what I do know. This is what Jesus has done for my life. And my life has never been better since I've given it to Jesus. And that, that's what this man could say. I can't answer all that, but here's the deal. I was blind, but now I see. Argue that. That's all we need to share. Verse 26. Then they said to him, again, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I told you already and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? This guy's getting bold. I love it. He just starts chiding them now. Hey, you're, you're wasting my time, man. I got things to see for the first time in my life, literally. You want to be his disciples? You want to share more? Are you trying to figure out now? And I love it. That's just... Then they reviled him and said, you are his disciple, but we are Moses' disciples. We know that God spoke to Moses. As for this fellow, we do not know where he is from. The man answered and said to them, why, this is a marvelous thing that you do not know where he is from, yet he has opened my eyes. Now, again, listen to what these Pharisees are doing. And we saw it in chapter 8. This is oftentimes what people will do to you. They don't have any argument or thing to say when you just begin to share with them what Jesus has done. When you start talking about the gospel, they know. There's that conscience beating within them that is saying, this is right, this is true. You did not come from monkeys. There is no evolution. You are not your own. You have a creator. And their heart is beating. They know these things inside but what does Romans 1 says? They want to suppress the truth. And in order to suppress the truth, when they don't have an argument, they just attack. And they start putting you down. They say, oh no, you're his disciple. We're disciples of Moses. Again, trying to show their spiritual superiority and elitism. We're not one of those people. We're not like you. We're better. And all they can do is tear down and, and start to kind of revile against them. And this man says, and I love that. How does this man conclude? He says, this is a marvelous thing. It's a marvelous thing that he was given his sight. But that's not what he's saying. It's a marvelous thing that you aren't able to see that Jesus is God. Because nobody has ever received sight before from being blind. And you're dismissing this. You're trying to put Jesus aside here. It's a marvelous thing that you're not able to accept this. Let's move on to our last point, the confession now. Let's move through this here. Verse 31. We've seen the cure. We've seen the controversy. But now we look at the confession of this man. Verse 31. Now we know that God does not hear sinners. But if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, he hears him. Since the world began, it has been unheard of that anyone opened the eyes of one who is born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered and said to him, you were completely born in sins. And are you teaching us? 
and they cast him out. Again, just the pride of these verses. All they can say is, you were completely born in sins. Are you going to teach us? We know better. But they were missing it. They're in the dark. This man has just received the light of Jesus. And they're in the dark. They can't see it. Their pride stops them from seeing it. Pride is such a wicked thing in man and woman. I don't want to leave you guys out. It's a wicked thing. Because it's pride that, that keeps us from seeing our own condition in reality, apart from Jesus. And they're failing to see it. But notice this, this verse 35, I love it. Then Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And when he had found him, he said to him, do you believe in the son of God? And the men answered and said, who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, you have both seen him and it is he who is talking with you. Then he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. He worshipped him. Now this man is having his knowledge of Jesus reaching that point where he realizes this truly is more than just a man, more than just a prophet as he alluded to earlier. Now he says, Jesus, I believe that you are the son of God, that you are the one that has come to give life to all of us. And this man falls down now and he worships Jesus. And what a great picture this is here because Jesus comes to the outcast, the down and discouraged. This man's been put out of the synagogue, basically. He's not been excommunicated, but Jesus comes to those that are the outcast, the down, the discouraged. Jesus comes alongside him and Jesus wants to pick you up from your current reality and move you into greater intimacy with him. Sometimes that comes through through those hardships and suffering that that. that these things are, are even more accomplished in our lives. Think of, of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the, the fiery furnace. It was in the midst of their greatest need that Jesus reveals himself to them and that they begin to walk in greater fellowship and intimacy with Jesus. So this man now comes to a greater understanding and, and that fullness of knowledge of who Jesus is and it brings him to that place of worship and wonder in the Lord. Listen, if it, if it makes... If it takes making me blind for me to be moved into a greater wonder of God, then so be it. If it takes healing me of a sickness to move me into a greater wonder of God, then even better. That's what I'll I'll take any day. But here's the thing. What does God need to do to bring you into that awe and wonder and worship of him? Are you there right now? Or the things that are holding you back? May I, may, may you, may, may we as a church grow in our wonder and awe of God. May we be those that are worshiping him because of all that he's done already. Because we were once blind, but now we see. We were dead, but now we've been made alive by his grace and mercy. Out of his great love with which he loved us, he's made us alive. May that move us into a place of worship and awe of God. Well, Jesus said here, close, close this up. Jesus said, For judgment I've come into, the, into this world that, I, that those who do not see may see and that those who see may be made blind. And some of the Pharisees who were with him heard these words and said to him, Are we blind also? And Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no sin. But now you say, We see, therefore your sin remains. And that's a bit of a, a peculiar verse to end on there. It can seem kind of confusing, but what Jesus is saying here is that if the Pharisees recognized that they were blind and that they were in need 
of spiritual sight, then they could be healed and set free. They'd be forgiven. They'd come to the Lord and be forgiven. They'd be without sin. Because it's only when we come to Jesus and recognize we're in need that he can do that work in us. But since they felt everything was okay, Jesus said, your, your sin remains. There was a spiritual pride and confidence in their own abilities, in their own righteousness. And it was a self-righteousness, not the righteousness of God. They felt they had it all together, but they were actually lost and they were walking in darkness. So Jesus says, your sin remains because you think you see. The moment that we can acknowledge ourselves to say, Lord, I need you because I am blind. I, I can't make it on my own. I need you, Jesus. The moment that we can do that, he comes in and he does that work. He illuminates our lives. He shines that light of the world into us. He forgives us of our sin. He does that work. May we allow him to do that. I'm going to invite the worship team up so we can just close in a time of, uh, of just worship before the Lord. And I want to leave you with a couple points here. First of all, understand that God has a purpose for your life. And he wants your life to bring glory to God. Are you allowing him to, to do that in whatever way that he needs to do so? Maybe it's even in the midst of suffering. But understand that even in the pain and trials, there's a purpose that God wants to accomplish through it. And it's about him and his work and his glory being revealed. Secondly, God is a proclamation for your life. He wants your life to be a witness of what he has done for you. Are you sharing that with others? Are you allowing him to speak through you and for your life to be a testimony of what he's done? Testimony of a changed life. Thirdly, God has a pattern for your life. And that is that you would keep growing in worship and awe of God, walking humbly before him, uh, uh, admitting your need for him and allowing him to do that work in you. But may we keep growing in that knowledge of God and in that awe of God leading us on into the worship of him. So let's stand together. And I'm going to have our prayer partners up in the front or in the back. And, and, and we really just want to make these times available for you. And, and we're all here and we need prayer. And I never want anybody to feel awkward or weird about coming and receiving prayer because we need that. And there's people here to come alongside and minister to you. Maybe you just got questions or you've got stuff going on that you just need that support of a brother or sister in the Lord to come alongside you. So take advantage of that as we just end this service in worship of the Lord, waiting on Him. Let me pray and then we'll just move in that time of worship. Lord, thank you for our time today, today in your word and to learn these truths and all that you have for us. And I pray that, Lord, you would do that work in us. Thank you that you have given us sight. You've revealed the truth to us. You've shone your light into us. You've given us life in you. And Lord, I pray that we would continue to grow in you, learn of you, and show you, Lord, in this world that we live. All for your glory and honor. We pray in your name, Jesus. Amen.